Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. We have invested in 28 companies so far. The most recent one is actually one that is um, introducing the first vaccines for honeybees ever created. Yeah, every one of our uh, companies has something what I call the triad. It's basically a disruptive deep tech which is ushering in radically better unit economics paired with radically better environmental economics. And if you can get those three together, there's a lot of magic that you can do. If you're trying to go solve for the relationship between humanity and nature, you kind of do need to think about the whole thing. And the cheaper unit economics, both better for democratization, and it is also better in terms of, you know, having the force to upgrade how an entire industry works as opposed to just launching a successful product in the market. Ergo, our desire to kind of find things in the triad. Hey everyone, this week's episode was honestly a ton of fun. Tom Chi is one of the biggest thinkers I've encountered in the climate space. He was one of the founding members of Google X, leading teams that develop self-driving cars, Google Glass, high-altitude balloons that broadcast internet, and much, much more. He also helped build Microsoft Outlook and Yahoo Answers. Tom now teaches and coaches entrepreneurs and is the founder of At One Ventures. Tom's investment thesis is truly visionary, aspiring to not just reduce carbon emissions, but to create a net positive civilization where humans do more good than harm to nature. This conversation is really quite philosophical and we cover a lot of ground, but I'm already finding some practical applications for Tom's ideas. I hope you find this as provocative and useful as I did. So let's dive in. Here we go. Tom Chi, welcome to Invested in Climate. So great to have you here today with us. Yeah, great to be here. Where do I find you today? I just landed in Los Angeles like 15 minutes ago. So that's where I am, but I'm usually based in San Francisco. Great. And has your travel schedule picked back up to pre-COVID levels? I hope it never does because I used to travel five or six times a month. So it's not, not there yet, but traveling is happening again. Okay. Well, I hope for you also to maintain a better balance and to carry with you some of what you've learned through COVID. Tom, there's so much that I want to talk about with you today. And um, I've been a fan and, and have learned alongside you or through you for many years. So excited for this chance to talk. I'm going to start this conversation in a way that's really different for me, as I know that you think really differently. And I want to tap into that. So it's a basic question, but let's treat it just as a catalyst for our conversation. Are you optimistic about the future of life on Earth? It's really just about time scale, because 
we do live on a planet that is highly conducive for life over the course of the macro arc of the of the planet and like over the course of a couple billion years it has just been more and more complex and more and more more action happening in terms of like what what kind of life forms you know come up in this planet as we get on to some of the smaller and look there's been mass extinctions too there's like five mass extinctions ahead of this and then there's a lot of minor extinctions if you get into it where you know we might have lost 15% of global biodiversity and then the mass extinctions we might have lost 50% or 70% I guess the worst one might have been as high as 90%. But like you look at all that, but in the macro arc of all of that, then, you know, the planet has always bounced back with stronger biodiversity, really, every single time. So I think in in that arc and and the arc of hundreds of millions of years, then yes, I'm very optimistic that life will continue on this planet. I think as we get into some of the more local arcs, because any individual species on the planet, mammalian species typically last between one to 10 million years. We're one of those. And, you know, I think there's a question of, number one, whether whether we'll even get to just the average zone of how long these species last. We're maybe not uh, approaching this in, in such a way that will allow us to last for 10 million years. But that's really kind of the work. And when there is work to do, then I, I kind of put aside the, you know, what optimism is. I mean, when there's work to do, you can just get on to doing the work. Like optimism, a lot of times is a position that you take when there's not something that you can do directly, right? It's like, oh, I'm optimistic that my sports team is going to win. Well, I'm not going to do that directly, right? So like, that's the right place for optimism. But if you're one of the people or um, in the larger group of people that are wanting or supporting, you know, doing some things with your own hands, with your own mind to go and, and make a change here, then Optimism is less important than efficacy. Hmm. And it's realizing that you have that agency to switch from optimism to efficacy. Well, I mean, look, you need to be open, which is different than optimistic. You need to be open to the possibility that things could improve. But optimism almost like skips a step where it's like, oh, it, you know, I think it's going to be fine. Versus openness is like, hey, I'm open that it could be improved. But honestly, a lot of things are very sucky right now. One might look at that and say, oh, very pessimistic. It's like, no, no, no. Just like open and moving into efficacy. That's the vibe. Fantastic. Tom, to understand your point of view and you know, really understand where you're coming from, the work that you're doing and how it's informing your view, if you don't mind, I'm going to borrow from something that you said in a talk. And as I mentioned, I'm, I'm a fan. I've watched a bunch of your talks and they're fantastic. I highly recommend them for our listeners. You can find them at tomchi.com or on the At One Ventures website. And I'll include links to those in the show notes. But I might pull from your talks throughout our conversation as they really sparked a lot of curiosity for me. What you said was that rather than chase success, perhaps we should fall in love with our medium enough to paint a masterpiece. And so as we try to learn about where your perspective is coming from, I'd love to hear what is your medium and what's the masterpiece that you're working on? Yeah. So I have a couple different media, just like, you know, like in the creative arts, I'm a musician, you know, I am, uh, I, I do visual art as well, little things like that. In my regular work, then my medium is cognition and basically this kind of interfacing with the physical world. Like that could be through engineering, design, all that sort of thing, but like using kind of the foundations of the physical world as part of your input design constraint. And I think of the two, like the, 
you know, the second one's easier to understand because there's all these disciplines like engineering and design, both of which I, I have some formal training in, where people kind of expect, yeah, that of course, that's what that is. But cognition as a medium is something that people are a little bit less familiar with. And what cognition as a medium is, is if you understand that the ways that people use their minds are obviously lots of diversity, but as you look at that diversity, you can dig in a little bit and you can start to see uh, styles, if you will. And you can also start to see a terrain across all the different styles of cognition. And as you start to get a sense of the terrain across all these styles of cognition, it's basically building the palette of what you're able to go work with in terms of how one uses cognition as a conscious tool, as opposed to kind of be a victim of their cognition. So there is kind of this concept from Buddhism, which is you are not your thoughts. And this is basically to have people back away from the cliff where it's like, oh, I'm anxious all the time. I'm an anxious person. It's like, well, is that exactly right? You know, you're not your thoughts. You should back away from it a little bit. I'm not saying you're not feeling anxiety. I'm not saying you're not feeling depression. I'm not saying that you're not feeling whatever you're saying you're feeling. You are. First, that Buddhist sensibility is like, well, back away from it a little bit. You are not those thoughts. There's a fundamental you that is beyond just being an anxious person, right? There's certainly other facets to you beyond that. And to me, that's like, the half step in the direction, and that's very useful to opening the possibility. But it doesn't get you into the zone of cognition as a medium yet. It just lets you know that, you know, uh, you can step out of being in the muck of one perspective, one style of cognition, right? Anxious cognition is really a style of cognition. It was actually very useful in our evolutionary history at various points. Like if you were like the lookout that was going to, you know, guard the tribe at night, you know, when there was wolves and what have you around. It's like, you should be an anxious person. Yeah, it's actually a very useful skill. Like that's why that's why it survived for, for so many millennia. And as a style of cognition, incredibly useful for some things. But if you can kind of step back from that and not make it a permanent personality trait, and you understand, well, that's just a style of cognition that I practice from time to time. And just like any style of anything, some people are better at it and some people are worse at it. And I happen to be really good at what people call anxiety, but really what it is, is a type of vigilance. So I'm really good at vigilance. And there's a type of, as a type of cognition, that's extremely useful for some specific tasks in life, but not all the tasks. So when you understand that you are not your thoughts, you get a little bit of distance. And that allows you to kind of turn in the direction of the active intentional usage of various styles of cognition, including what we call anxiety, or, you know, what you might replace with the word of vigilance you know, including vigilance as an actively useful tool that you are going to uh, kind of shape your cognition into based on the situation. And that's where things start to get really interesting. Because ahead of this, people kind of have a lot of pitfalls. One is that they're so immersed in it that they don't understand that they're not their thoughts. That's obvious. Another, and we already talked about that one. Another one is having a set of them that you do so often that you kind of lock in as a permanent identity or personality, where it's like, well, I'm this type of person, not that type of person. I'm this type of person, not that type of person. You know, if that's working for you for the things that you do day to day, that's great. But sometimes what that also has happened is that there are all these opportunities for you to go learn new styles of cognition or apply new styles of cognition to be able to solve problems you've never been able to solve before. And then you look at that and you say, that's not my personality. I'm not that type of person. And therefore, I will never be able to use the kind of cognition 
you know, that would be required to solve that problem. And once again, that's like an over-identification with what it is there. So instead of being immersed in one and feeling victimized by one, maybe you have like three, you know, attributes of your, of your personality per se. If I were to adopt that frame, I might say, I'm a creative person, you know, I'm a technical person, I'm a whatever. And then if something was not those things, then I'd say, well, that's not my personality, I can't really get into it. That's a little bit more open, but it's not really open. When you really open the doors and you understand there's as many styles of cognition as there are styles of music, for example, and that you might be able to enjoy many styles of music and they're appropriate for different situations, then man, the world gets pretty amazing at that point. I'd love to connect this to the work that you're doing around climate change. And if I understand, I believe that you're using your cognition and your vigilance and really using it to craft a vision of a better future. Yeah. I mean, actually, part of the reason that my firm approaches the problem the way that we do, you know, really spent some time with the types of cognition that we're applying to climate right now. And I was like, oh, wrong cognition, wrong tool for the job. Right. So there is kind of the the inconvenient truth, Al Gore camp of things where it's like, I'm going to, you know, scared straight. It's like, I'm going to wake you up by scaring you. And it's like, okay, okay. You know, that is a style of cognition that you can bring to a problem. And if you weren't aware, uh, aware at all, if you were asleep and now you're awake, then maybe there's some utility to that. So I, I do think that there's a point in history where there was some utility to that. But to the extent that it's like, you have all this, you have a style that generates uh, a lot of um, fear, that generates a lot of um, anxiety, then you start operating a lot more out of the amygdala, which leads to fight, flight, freeze. And when I look at this, there are some people that like saw the climate challenges, like, I'm ready to fight, let's step up, right? But there's also a bunch of people that, you know, flight, where it's like, oh, I'm a denier, I don't even believe this thing, it doesn't exist right? That's one way of mentally fleeing from the thing. And then freezing, I'm sure you've heard of people, you know, freezing where it's like, oh, you know, there's nothing that we can do. I'm frozen, right? I'm stuck in place. So we're getting like amygdala level responses at the societal level because we've taken a particular style of cognition to the problem to start. And that was one style of cognition that, that we approached. There's another style of cognition that we took to the problem, which was kind of the let's just get enough people together. And if we can vote for the right leaders, then those leaders are going to, you know, solve all of our problems. And, you know, there's some extent to which policy can make a difference. But there are some extents to which, you know, like, actual practical design, engineering operations, all these other skills need to come to bear. And just because somebody, you know, signs something on a piece of paper, that doesn't necessarily do it. And also, you can have a situation where, you know, Obama administration, they protected the Tongass forest. And then under Trump, they basically completely opened it up for logging and drilling. And then under Biden, I think still a little bit TBD, I hope they, you know, reprotect it. You know, you see that style of cognition has got this risk that comes with it as well, where if everything is about mobilization toward voting in order to go drive, uh, you know, political awareness and, and policy changes, then you're still missing a lot of the picture of what is required to actually solve the practical problems on the ground for climate. If you take like a style of cognition lens and you, you analyze what we had been doing in climate, I was like, well, there's a lot of holes here. This is not a complete picture. Now, I'm not saying that none of you know, these other styles are completely useless. They're not. Like, you know, if you were asleep, then you could wake up. It's great. If we're not passing any good policy, then this could help us pass some good policy. 
But this is like an incomplete way to go address the problem. And given the magnitude of the problem, it's like, oh, we need to bring the full set of tools to bear. I love the idea of a complete set of tools and a complete way to solve the problem. I talk to climate investors all the time. They're driven by investment theses around the types of unprecedented business opportunities created by the need to respond to climate change. And what I've learned about At One Ventures really stands out that you're driven by a bold aspiration of creating what you're calling a net positive civilization. Tell us what that means. Yeah. So it turns out that the reason that this planet is so conducive to life, and this is an a observation that was, you know, widely popularized by Janine Bennis of, you know, of kind of biomimicry. She launched the Biomimicry Institute and, and founded it. And, and, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's what most people know her for. But, but she has a phrase, which is life improves the conditions for other life, right? And if you look at basically any organism on the planet, you'll have these soil microbes, which actually make it easier for other, you know, organisms in the soil to get access to nutrients. You're going to have the plants, which are basically collecting solar energy and then creating the energy source for the entire ecosystem around them. You're going to have, so really every organism on the planet is doing something where its actual contribution to the planet is a net positive. In the process of existing, it basically creates a net positive in, in various ways that then enriches all the other aspects of the ecosystem. Uh, and this is why like a healthy ecosystem actually has the most possible organisms there. It's not one of these things, you know, like in economics where it's like, oh, this was a natural monopoly. So if you keep going, of course, there's almost no competitors after a couple of decades of this industry, right? Like we don't design our economy in a way that is as nuanced and sophisticated or robust. This is why we have so many economic crashes as an ecosystem. But if you were to step back and you were to learn from the way that organisms and ecosystems work and recognize that pretty much all these species on the planet, you know, make the planet more conducive for life, there's no reason that us as a species could not also do the same thing. And in one of my talks, I basically point to the fact that the global biomass of humanity is basically equivalent to the global biomass of ants. You know, I think there's 350 million tons of us and there's 350 million tons of them. But the difference between us and ants is we eat 3% of our body weight per day, so about 10 million tons a day, and then they eat 30% of their body weight per day, so like 100 million tons per day. So they literally consume 10 times more of the planet than us every day, and yet we don't sit around complaining about ant overpopulation because the style in which they do it is net contributive to the ecosystems that they're a part of. So in the process of consuming 100 million tons of food a day, Actually, all the ecosystems of the planet, you know, that they're native to, you can always have invasives problems, right? But like all the ecosystems of the planet that they're native to basically are enriched because of their activities. And there's no reason from the laws of physics, obviously, because, you know, everything that these organisms are doing follow the laws of physics, but there's no reason from the laws of physics that we as a civilization could not follow the same template, where our basic existence, our basic process of living, making the things that we need, taking care of each other, taking care of our surroundings could not also be as net contributive or even more since we are conscious beings that can design things over multiple generations, uh, as opposed to ants, you know, they have a way of improving, but more through uh, evolution and DNA. I think it's a, a powerful idea that humans 
really can be contributing to the health of the planet as we go about our business rather than just getting by or trying to do it more sustainably. And you see new businesses and startups as one of the means through which we can change our course and start creating that future. So I'd love to hear about some of the companies that you're investing in working with that are helping create that net positive civilization. Yeah, right before we get there, it's like, why even try to do it through business? And for me, there's just kind of the observation of there are parts of civilization that are moving faster and parts of civilization that are moving slower. And if you have a really severe thing that's happening, an acute thing that's happening, where you need to go address it quickly, then you got to go work with the parts of civilization that are moving faster. Now, like I said, I'm not against political action and passing policies and all that sort of thing. But the pace of that is insanely slow relative to the actual problems that we're facing. So things like business and technology, which luckily I have some background in, those are sectors of civilization that move quite quickly. And you can kind of steer the course on them and kind of track toward what we need in less time if you have a clear vision of what you're trying to, to go to. And on that front, yes, we have invested in 28 companies so far. The most recent one is actually one that is um, introducing the first vaccines for honeybees ever created. Yeah, every one of our, our uh, companies has something what I call the triad. It's basically a disruptive deep tech, which is ushering in radically better unit economics paired with radically better environmental economics. And if you can get those three together, there's a lot of magic that you can do. I think a lot of people that have been trying to make more sustainable business they drop off on one of those things. They don't have the unit economics. They're hoping that you'll pay twice as much to go have a shoe that is more sustainably produced or that you'll pay the $100 for yoga pants with eight recycled water bottles in them. And I'm not saying that isn't a little bit better for the environment, but it's like when the unit economics are more expensive instead of less, then it means that you're going to kind of uh, cordon yourself off into like a little niche. Like the people that are wealthy enough in the world to go and afford $100 for an item of apparel, then that's who you're going to be able to get. But I remind my team all the time that roughly 80% of the planet lives on less than $10 a day. And there's a couple billion that lives on less than $2 a day. So it's like, I'm not saying that, you know, we can't launch businesses and, and start them in the developed markets and you know, make a good business there. But if you're trying to go solve for the relationship between humanity and nature, you kind of do need to think about the whole thing. And the cheaper unit economics is both better for democratization. And it is also better in terms of, you know, having the force to upgrade how an entire industry works, as opposed to just launching a successful product in the market. Ergo, our desire to kind of find things in the triad. Just to toss another one out there. So, as you mentioned, the thesis of our, of our firm is to help humanity become a net positive to nature. For us, we basically break nature into four actionable categories, air, water, soil, biodiversity. What's nice about each one of those categories is it's very clear when things are getting better and when things are getting worse. So you know which way is up and down. The word nature is a little bit more amor amorphous. You know, people might have different conceptions about what they like about nature. And it's like, which way is up and down? It's a little fuzzier. But if you basically say, here's the four categories, it's very clear when we're making the water worse or the soil worse or biodiversity worse or the air via emissions or air pollution, right? And therefore, you know when you're making it better too. And because you now you have the ability to 
have a, a ladder and a compass relative to each one of these areas, then you can make a stack rank. And what we do is we create a stack rank of the industries that are most damaging in all of those categories. So for example, you know, more than 90% of the water pollution on the planet is from just four industries, agriculture, textile dyeing, oil and gas, paper and pulp. And if you wanted to deal with 90% of global water pollution, you just you know, change the unit economics about how those four industries relate to water and you're in good shape, actually. If you want to deal with the last 10%, you got to work on a thousand more industries. So landing this into another you know, investment that we've done, we've invested in a company that has invented a machine that completely eliminates wastewater from the textile dyeing process. So that'll go from second largest water polluter in the planet you know, down to zero. So that's a nice ecological benefit. But on the unit economic side, their unit economics are two and a half to three times cheaper. So instead of costing 28 to 35 cents to go dye, it costs nine to 15 cents to go dye that same length of fabric. And something like that has got so much motivating force. I actually don't need to go convince you to be a more conscious consumer. Even the people at the industrial level will be like, oh my God, they across the street, they, you know, their dye shop only costs 10 cents. We're over here at 32 cents. We're going to go out of business if we don't adopt what they're doing. And it's like, perfect. Because when you adopt what they're doing, you're also going to get rid of all your water pollution. I'd love to dive into one of the phrases you used. You mentioned that you like to do investments that upgrade how an industry works. And in another one of your talks, you described how your work as a founding member of Google X, leading the team that developed self-driving cars, Google Glass, uh, high-altitude balloons that broadcast internet and, and many other projects, led you to believe in invention catalysts. Tell us what an invention catalyst is and how some of your investments fit that bill. A normal invention is something that improves the thing itself. And basically every invention is is either going to improve or be some variation on a, a thing that exists. So one can imagine, hey, I, I have a toaster and now I've invented a toaster that toasts, you know, uh, 30% faster. And now it can do six slices of bread, right? That's an invention. No problem. And most inventions only improve the scope of whatever that thing was in the first place. But then there's a subset of inventions where when they hit the scene, not only is a better toaster that changes how one makes toast, there are other inventions that are catalytic in that their presence upgrades not only the object itself, but uh, can propagate across entire systems. And one of the examples that I gave in the talk was when we were working on the self-driving car, we had the realization, though many have had the realization since, that the fact that you might be able to have self-driving cars that you are able to you know, autonomously order whenever you want and actually exactly the car that you need for the job. So like if you are doing home improvement, maybe a pickup truck rolls up. If you're going on a hot date, then maybe a sports car rolls up. You know, maybe if you're going to get groceries, maybe like a simple two-seater rolls up, right? And it's like, so, you know, you could imagine a world where you have way better transportation utility. You could choose to own a car or not, you know, actually becomes way more optional than before. And the main metric that changes in the presence of the invention of a self-driving car is utilization of cars as an asset. So when you look at, you know, average utilization of all the cars on the planet, it's between four to five percent which means the people that own cars, and I think everybody can attest to this themselves, you know, that owns a car, 95% of your life, you're not in the car. You're not driving the car, unless your actual job is to drive a car all the time, right? 
So like most people that own cars where their job is not to drive a car, you know, 95% of the time it's an unused asset. And think about all the embodied carbon, think about all the resources, think about all these sorts of things. And I think that doesn't even get used. If you can make a self-driving car, you could imagine a world where way fewer people own cars. And actually we have fewer cars overall, but each one of those cars is utilized more like 40% instead of 4%. And that means, you know, one car could serve 10 times as much transportation utility. And because of it, you might be able to have way fewer cars. Now, would you have 10x fewer cars? No, it depends on how many people concurrently want to use cars as transportation. But we estimated from pretty good statistical models that you could bring the number of cars down on the planet by 70 to 80% and still have uh, equal or better transportation utility to today. And when one imagines how catalytic it would be to be able to to do that change, imagine New York City with 80% fewer cars, right? You know, imagine... (laughs) Any place. So much space. Right. And, and, and we actually used to joke back in 2011, we used to joke that once this tech, you know, got finished and popularized and, and we started to, it started to have its catalytic effect, we would go around to all the cities of the world, to all the signs that said parking lot and just erase the trailing letters and just leave the word park. <laughs> because there's so many cities, like in typical cities, you know, 15 maybe up to 30%, depending on how your city's laid out, is dedicated to parking space, you know, in terms of the actual just, you know, available space in the city. And imagine being able to reclaim 20, 30% of a city for public space, parks, you know, community spaces, things that people actually, that really enrich lives. Like nobody looks at a parking lot and say, oh, this is really enriching the community. It's really beautiful. I'm so glad they built this. They're just like, well, okay, another parking lot. The catalytic effect of this one thing, which is us like doing advanced sensor fusion in order to give like and path planning in order to have a car be able to go navigate on a road, ends up having these second order, third order effects across the system. Outside of that, it might change how all of cities are designed in the long run. You'll be probably excited to hear that in a recent episode, I spoke with Anand, uh, the founder of Halo Car. Oh. Uh, who's leveraging s- some of that thinking too around let's activate cars rather than let them be parked and let's reduce the numbers. Really great conversation with him. Yeah, he's great. Tom, a couple of your investments caught my eye, particularly because of their creativity and really the elegance of their design. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about them. Cruise Foam is one and Simplifiver. Yeah. Tell us about those and what made you excited about them? So yeah, we're producing somewhere between 350 to 400 million tons of plastic per year and generating a huge amount of waste, like the great majority of that, more than 80% of that is like waste within one year. Um, So yeah, we're making a muck of things. And when we're looking at the plastic waste problem, our first thought, what my, my hope when I started digging into the problem was like, well, I hope it's like a Pareto situation where there's just like one type of plastic, like one foundational monomer, which is like most of the, the the waste. And then, you know, the other types are kind of minor. Broadly speaking, there's like seven major types of plastic. And when I actually looked up, you know, their contribution to the waste stream, 100 divided by seven is like roughly 14 per category, right? And it turned out that they were almost perfectly evenly divided. It was like, this is 12% of the waste stream. This is 16%. This is 15%. I was like, oh my God, we're going to need to solve all of them. So this includes, uh, you know, polypropylene, polyethylene, polystyrene, uh, vinyl, PET, whatever. Doesn't matter. There's seven. Yeah, polyurethane. Okay, I will stop. And <laughs> like, you know, what it means is you got to dig into each one of those. 
what cruise foam has done is they are a very good swing against all of polystyrene and polyurethane foam, right? And basically what they have created is a material that is a type of foam, but it is completely earth compatible, completely earth digestible. If you were to make, you know, styrofoam packing using this stuff, you could toss it in the ocean, it becomes ocean within a couple of weeks. You could toss it in the dirt, it becomes dirt within a couple of weeks with no technical recycling. You don't need to like shred it up. You don't need to heat it up. You don't need to do anything to prepare for it to simply biodegrade. It's safe enough that you can eat it. And if a turtle were to eat it, then nothing happens. It just digests it. Now, how is this possible? Well, it turns out that nature also created polymers and they're called biopolymers, you know, for obvious reasons. And we basically discovered that if you can go leverage the biopolymers that nature is already making and then transform them to the forms that we need using relatively limited heat chemistry, then you can go beat the unit economics of uh, petrochemical plastics. The weakness in petrochemical plastics is all of them typically require extremely high process heat in order to go crack molecules and then, you know, ahead of reducing them to monomer. I can get into some very long technical thing about it, but don't worry about it so much. It is, uh, I'll just suffice it to say that uh, typically when you're cracking these molecules, you're needing to go apply 1000 degrees C, 1500 degrees C of heat. And that ends up uh, using a lot of energy and, and making your OPEX cost, you know, substantial around energy. Now, the feedstock cost for petrochemical plastics, that's why they've stuck around for so long because it's zero. Because what people often don't know is that the petrochemical industry just used to be called, you know, the petrol industry. It became the petrochemical industry because they had all this extra residual from the oil and gas refining process. And they hired a bunch of chemical engineers to say like, hey, look, we got tons of this residual every single time we refine that. Can you do something with it? And that's where, you know, the kind of plastics industries and other, you know, petrochemical chemicals, you know, basically were birthed from from that incentive. Now, because of it, it means that the pure feedstock, at least as long as we're in a world that still uses a lot of oil and gas, right? Though mostly oil between those two. But like, as long as we're in a world that uses a lot of that, then there's there's going to be an infinite amount of this feedstock to make more plastics than, than the planet can really deal with. And if that feedstock costs nothing, that's why it's been so difficult for other folks to go compete and get those better unit economics. So what it means, okay, I'll say this one other thing, and I think the, the entire picture should come together. When you're trying to understand the unit economics of anything, there's typically three major drivers, feedstock, processing, and transport logistics. So feedstock is what's the stuff that you put into it to be able to work with. You know, processing is what's the energy that you need to use? What did you need to physically do to it to transform it from the feedstock into the form you want to use? And transport logistics is how did you get all the ingredients to the right place and how did you ship the end thing to the right place? Now around transport and logistics, whether you use biopolymers or whether you, you, uh, use a petrochemical approach, you know, that's about the same. You just need to, you centralize production someplace and you ship stuff to places. So that washes out that those unit economics basically the same. But because in the petrochemical industry, the feedstock cost has been zero. It means that, you know, effectively zero, it's pennies kind of stuff, uh, cost. That means any new competitor that is trying to dethrone any of these plastics need to have their feedstock plus processing be cheaper than just the processing cost of petrochemical plastics. Luckily, 
petrochemical pl plastics do require a lot of heat to go crack those molecules. And because of it, there is some room in there. But you can't just do it with anything. You need to go find something that is widely available that you know has got polymer-like properties. So largest uh, biopolymer on the planet is cellulose, which is what Simplifiber uses. You know, second largest uh, you know a polymer on the planet is chitin, and that is what uh, cruise foam uses. So like we've picked extremely available biopolymers. The heat processing on it is minimal. So our heat processing, a lot of it's happening below the boiling temperature of water, below 100 C. So that's that's way uh, less expensive. And then the stuff that's over 100 C is it's not much over 100 C, like 150 C. And because of that, you can get actually better unit economics on new plastics. Now, we will never displace the plastics of the world until we actually beat those unit economics or we just fully outlaw them. But, you know, the reason that we haven't been able to fully outlaw them is they're so usefully expressive. They can do so many things in the product realm, and we don't have a lot of materials that can replace them. But to the extent that we can create biopolymers that are fully earth compatible, earth digestible, any ecosystem can reclaim them without really any fuss or mess, and we can get those unit economics cheaper than petrochemical plastics, then you have the formula to actually finally start knocking down the source of these problems. Just to give listeners a really clear sense of where do you find biopolymers? And so you mentioned that uh, Simplifiber uses cellulose, cruise foam uses chitin. Oh, yeah. So let me go describe it. Every plant that you've ever seen is made of cellulose. Depending on the plant, it'll also have hemicellulose and lignin, though some plants don't have any lignin, you know, like kelp, for example, has no lignin. So plant-based plastics, we've seen plant-based straws and different things. So that's what that is. Uh, any green plant has got a bunch of cellulose in it. Any insect you've ever seen has got a bunch of chitin in it. The shell of an insect is chitin. So basically what that also means is any ecosystem that has been able to successfully biodegrade a plant or an insect can receive things like this. Ergo, the stuff that cruise foam or Simplifiber you know, makes is fine to biodegrade in any setting that has ever biodegraded a plant or an insect, which is kind of every spot on the planet. Fantastic. Tom, one of the other impacts that you've talked about of invention catalysts is that it can help reshape our beliefs about what's possible so that we can drive rapid transformation. And that's a really powerful idea. Uh, you've spoken about the need that for invention catalysts to also awaken global consciousness about the fact that we have the world we have because we think the way we do. And all around us, there are signs that global consciousness is shifting, but with the urgency of climate change, I'd argue it's a race. And so I'm curious, what do you think we can do to accelerate a change in mindset and usher in the new paradigms that will help us meet the challenge we face? Let me kind of create a little bit of an arc here because there is very well-meaning people that wrote books like Limits to Growth. There is very well-meaning people that wrote books like The Population Bomb. And actually, a lot of that thought process is still lingering in society, where people are like, oh, we can never be sustainable. We have too many people. That's kind of the population bomb thinking. You know, Limits to Growth is like, we're already using three Earths worth of this material. We're already using 10 Earths worth of this material. And I think the ant analogy strongly challenges all of that. Because like the, you know, ants eat the equivalent amount of food to, you know, 80 to 90 billion humans. So that would be a lot of population, huh? Like much, much larger than our population. And they seem to be not destroying the planet. 
So like uh, maybe it's not about absolute population. It's about the style of how we do things. And the limits to growth sensibility is like that is basically a very noun based sensibility where it's like there's only this much of this and we can never get more. Like, for example, I hear all the time, oh, we're going to be fighting wars over water in the future because of da da da. There's only there's this much water on the planet, but only this tiny amount is fresh water. And then a bunch of that's locked up in ice and only this much is in it. Da, 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 da. And they get down to some fraction of a percent as to how much water is on the planet. And therefore, we can, you know, we're, we're going to end up fighting wars for it. But this is actually a line of thinking which thinks about water as a noun. And if you actually think about water as a verb, then what's actually going to happen on a warming planet is the source of all, you know, the great majority of rain on the planet in terms of the moisture in the atmosphere that becomes rain is evaporation off of the ocean. As the um, planet warms, there's going to be more of that than ever. And given that we're actually going to have more water falling than ever, you know, so like, there will be more water available to us than than in human history than ever um, as a verb, but you know. But in order to go deal with that well, we need to think about other verbs like the healthy hydrological function of the system. The reason that we have water shortages is not because in you know the future there will just be less rainfall. Actually, like I said, there'll be more evaporation. There'll be more net global rainfall. Period. It's because we messed up the hydrological cycles. We have like made a muck of surface hydrology, ground hydrology, atmospheric hydrology, and we haven't thought about it in a verb sense. We thought about it as nouns that we can enclose. Anyway, we're getting a bit into the specific types of consciousness that have been holding us back. Let's talk about the consciousness that we can move toward. So one of the examples that I gave in my talk, um, I was in Ecuador in 2018 when they were celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the rights of nature being added to their constitution. and you know, you can look it up online, what they added to the Constitution. It's like a couple paragraphs. You know, it might be like 15 sentences worth of text. But in that 15 sentences worth of text, they basically go and describe, you know, a river should have the right to flow. A forest should have the right to go restore itself. And like, we should treat that right just like we might treat any other human right. You know, what was compelling was, now look, that's a nice set of words to write into a Constitution. It and they wrote it during a time period where it was a kind of a crisis mode. Their economy had kind of collapsed. They actually reorganized the economy around the U.S. dollar. So if you ever go to Ecuador, you can use U.S. dollars. Ta-da! That is their currency. And then they rewrote the Constitution. You know, those are nice words. But what had been really compelling is that in the 10 years since those nice words were written, a lot of those words got tested in a court of law. And nature won a bunch of cases. And that case law now starts to go affect how everything else, you know, happens inside of that country. Now, at the end of the day, that's a very minor shift, right? It's like a 15 sentences. It's not that much. But like put in the right spot and then like played through people's consciousness through the courts, through, you know, things that came up as people said, well, now, if we're thinking about it this way now, how would we parse this differently? Because in the old days, I would just, you know, give you the right to do this type of deforestation, or I would sign off the lease for you to do so-and-so, and you go to town. Oh, you're going to dam that river, you're going to divert so-and-so, you're going to use most of the water for a mine site. Okay, well, you just you sign the contract, you, it's all legally fine. But people didn't see that as a type of consciousness. That is a type of consciousness. That's an enclosure, contract-driven type of consciousness where organizations or people are able to go own things that are in the commons and in a way that are not necessarily going to be supportive of anybody else in the commons. And 
that's a way to do it. But the rights of nature is also a way to do it. And once again, kind of going back to like the these uh, perspectives, this enables a style of cognition. And that style of cognition allows you to show up in a court of law and defend a river, right? It allows you to start thinking about the river as something that is a verb that needs to keep flowing in a healthy way, as opposed to a noun where it's, I'm going to break it up into acre feet that I can sell away, or I'm going to break it up into a segment that this industry is going to have access to this real estate. And, and, you know, as long as they, you know, pollute within these limits, then everything is okay. You know, there is like a beautiful philosophical aspect to it. And, you know, as one really kind of digs into the potential, like, you know, ideas philosophically around it, then there's lots of beautiful conversations to have. But I really get jazzed by the moment where that stuff like intersects with practice. Because like I said, that could have been a total fail. Like they could have added that to the constitution. And whenever, whenever it got tested in a court of law, nature could have lost over and over. But like when they actually put it in there and it got formed into practice and you could start to see how it began to shift how people were behaving as business, as subsequent policy, as whatever, then it's like you can see how a little nucleus of alternative cognition, alternative consciousness starts to go and and, uh, germinate and blossom into something that is potentially quite compelling for the way that we live together in a civilization. And back to your comments earlier, that technology and business are actually fast drivers of of change, especially relative to policy. Yeah, those were the ones that tested those rights of nature the soonest. And also perhaps are accelerating the new paradigms, the new mindsets that we need for a more sustainable future. They don't do them de facto, which is also another consciousness error that we made. Because ever since we got into like the, the neoliberal style of capitalism, and actually, there was laissez-faire capitalism, you know, 100 years prior, or whatever. There's a couple points where we kept being drawn into this idea that, like, the market itself was going to be intrinsically moral, that the, that the invisible hand would, would lift all the boats. And because when you say it's lifting all the boats, then that's basically saying, oh, it's doing something that's intrinsically moral. Like, the existence of the market is going to go help everybody, right? And that's just not true. Right. Like it turns out that like, you know, completely unregulated markets don't always help everybody. Sometimes they help people, you know, occasionally get lucky and it helps all the people. But most of the time it does not help all of the people. And what that means is instead of thinking about capitalism as an ideology, which is what it became like in the in the later 20th century and throughout a lot of the 20th century, it's like capitalism versus communism. It's like the big fight for the planet, uh, you know, an ideological fight. And it's like, okay. It's not even an ideology, really. Like if, if you make it into an ideology or you make it into a, a, I think about it, I think people treat it more like a religion because they almost looked to it for moral guidance, right? But if you treat it as an ideology or religion, you have failed it, right? Like it, that's not what it is. It's a tool. And like for me, capitalism is a tool that could be that you could replace capitalism with the word makes efficient. And you can make terrible things efficient and you can make beautiful things efficient. But there is like a moral core that you need to bring to the table in order to go decide what you're going to use it on, right? Like a hammer is a tool and you can use a hammer to bash people's heads in. And you can also use a hammer to go build homes for people. And it's like, okay, a tool is a tool. Like you don't want to worship the hammer and then have it be your ideology the way that a lot of folks, you know, in, 
in some parts of the political space kind of worship capitalism and say like anything that impedes the free market, only the free market knows best. And I was like, no, man, that's you abdicating your moral responsibility. And for us to be a civilization, we should have more conversations about what kind of civilization we want to build together. We should not just be rolling the dice that like, if we worship enough hammers, then suddenly everything is going Mm -hmm. to end up with housing for everybody. It might end up with a bunch of heads bashed in. And right now we're getting the mixture of both. Well, perhaps to borrow your language, perhaps capitalism needs to become a verb and we need to be really thoughtful of what what are the adverbs? How do we use it? How do we use that tool? Yeah. Another metaphor that I've applied to it is almost like you can almost think about the state that we're in and, and many people have referred to it as such as late stage capitalism. We've been doing capitalism a particular way for a while and it's obviously getting on its last legs. And, you know, there is this kind of sensibility, you know, out in a number of spheres that, that I participate in where people are like, tear down capitalism, tear down the patriarchy. And it's like, okay, okay, I, I get the general sentiment. And I also agree that a lot of harm has been done historically. But the lens that, you know, I would encourage people to apply to it is something more like, what if we were to compost late stage capitalism, <laughs> right? You know, like how like a big tree blocks out all the sun for a bit but then it gets a little too old and creaky. It can't even pump the water up to its high branches anymore. And then eventually it falls in the forest. And then from it, all the nutrients that are in it, the new generation of life springs forward. So to the extent that we do tear down the system that exists right now, let's tear it down with an eye toward how does it become composted? How do we reuse the nutrients in a way that, that a new generation of life you know, is able to, to embrace the, the light that is now available now that the shade of this old creaky tree is, uh, has been brought down. Tom, I love the conversation we've been having. It's pushed my thinking and I think listeners will really enjoy it. And I think some of them will ask, okay, now what do I do? And, you know, I think for other investors or for entrepreneurs, I think the nuggets of wisdom that you've offered are, you know, probably going to push their thinking and help them think bolder about the types of businesses that they're building. But for everyday listeners that aren't investors or entrepreneurs, what do you think are the most important and effective things they should be doing, and particularly around climate change? To kick this off, I'll share just a a general tool that helps with a lot of things, but could definitely help with this, which is if you're ever feeling powerless, then the formula for disempowerment, which you are probably applying, is to go make your problems large abstract and far from you. And this sounds like, oh, how come you know the government is so screwed up? Like we can't really get any of this done until we fix the whole government. Well, that's large. You know, that's abstract because the government is actually, it's a lot of things. I mean, people are like, oh, the government sucked. Like my house got destroyed by lava and that's a separate story. But like during that time period when the volcano, you know, when the lava was approaching my house, our community actually ended up destroying 600 homes in, in my county. The USGS was flying over this toxic plume of lava flow multiple times a day, giving super accurate reports that was helping bring people to safety, scientifically accurate. And I was like, this is the government too. These freaking heroes that are like risking their life multiple times a day to give us really accurate information and guide people to safety. This is the government too. So like when you keep things large, abstract and far, then you will automatically feel disempowered. And when you think about what you want to do in climate, you should go, instead of using the formula for disempowerment, which is large, you know, abstract and far, you should start employing the, the formula for empowerment, 
which is effectively the exact opposite, small, concrete, and near. So relative to the things in, you know, around the environment that you care the most about, what is small, concrete, and near to you that you might be able to go change? And for most people, there are going to be some changes that they can do immediately to how their home works, for example. And then there will be, you know, because that's extremely near. Nobody else is administering that, right? Then, you know, also near to you is your community organizations, your schools, like your county councils, your what have you, right? Like these are small and near. Like if you go to a county council meeting, it's like, how many people are on the task force for this? Three? And there's just volunteers from the community? I could be the fourth. And it's like, yeah, you could. I mean, most of these committees are like literally, you know, three people from the community that got passionate enough to go. And then then you might find yourself in charge of directing $10 million of resources for your county. Now, is that enough to solve global climate change? No, not by itself. But if a lot of people were doing that, then no, it's just the, the landscape starts to change. Like who would think that I'd be talking about Ecuador? Right. That was just a set of people that wrote a constitution in a different way. And nobody thinks about, you know, like Ecuador day to day is, you know, uh, at least back then, you know, in 2008 as like, oh, they're going to become this huge environmental leader. They're going to inspire all these other people. And it's like, no, no, there's just some people. And because Ecuador is one of the smaller population countries in all of South America, even. Right. So even amongst like the sphere, their local sphere of countries around them, they're like a little guy by comparison. And yet they were the ones that just made it small, concrete, and and close to them and decided to write something different. And it led to a lot of inspiration to everybody around them. Make your problems small, concrete, and near. Go after the ones that, that break your heart the most or inspire you the most, though typically breaking your heart the most like actually has you stay in it for longer. And then, yeah, stay with it long enough to see it through. And also toss in one other, one other idea in there to make it clear when you're making progress versus not. The, I have a phrase which I teach in my course, which is specificity is the friend of innovation. And you can tell when a team is really getting things done by how specific their current questions and their current answers are, right? So when the, when the Wright brothers and Wright sister, you know, started work on flight, then, you know, there was like a macro goal, which is like, hey, we want to fly right? But like, once they actually got into it, it got real specific. It became about gearing ratios. It became about, you know, the profile of wings. It it became about material selection. It became about understanding, you know, lift to the extent that we could understand it back then. It became, oh, they discovered, for example, that you need three degrees of freedom. You need pitch, roll, and yaw in order to go make it happen. And that's what it actually sounds like when you're solving a problem for real. So when I hear us talk about climate, and the conversation doesn't start sound more and more sophisticated every year, right? Because like 10 years ago, we're like, we got to keep it under 1.5C. And then here we are now. It's like, we got to keep it under 1.5C. That's to me, hmm. just like a bunch of people being like, I hope we can fly one day. And it's like, that sounds like you're not making any progress to me. Because I want to hear gearing ratios. I want to hear that you've discovered the degrees of freedom that are important for this problem. I want to hear, right? Like, that's what it sounds like when you're actually solving the thing. So as much as like, you know, I like everybody's like, oh, well, I got to go to Davos and like, you know, influence them or I got to go to the UN and influence them. It's like, I don't know, man, the conversation still sounds like I hope we fly one day. Maybe that's not where the progress is happening. Maybe the place where the progress is happening is at the county council meeting where they've like worked out that they're going to add composting to the mix for their county, right? It's that sort of stuff 
like where you where you hear the details, you hear the nuances. That is the stuff of making the future different, as opposed to um, oh, I hope we keep it under one point five degrees C, or I I hope we can, or even our goal of I hope we you know humanity can become a net positive nature. If that's all I had to say about it, then you should stop listening to me. But if if we start digging in, I need to stop myself from talking about the details of like about monomer creation, right? Because that's what it sounds like to go solve these problems. So you can tell if you're making progress because you will start talking about these hyper-specific things that are really critical to actually getting it done as opposed to, well, when is somebody going to do something about all these coal fire power plants? And it's like, no, 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 get into it. Like you will hear from your own language how far along you are in it. Tom, thank you. This has been a delightful conversation. I really appreciate your time and wishing you the best of luck. We'll continue to follow you and be excited for seeing how you continue to support Invention Catalyst, new thinking, entrepreneurs around the world, and a whole lot of provocative ideas that hopefully do take flight. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, Get in touch and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial accounting or legal advice. Thanks again.